Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. The Olympics were being held in Berlin, Germany, and the surrounding area. They were called in advance Hitler's games. Hitler was intent upon showing how there'd been a great renaissance in Germany recovering from World War I, and that was accomplished. He also was wanting to make sure that those who participated or observed would understand that the Aryan race was by far the superior race of mankind. He had his dream come true because Germany, the host country, won more gold medals than any other country, including the United States of America. The last day of the Olympics was met with great fanfare in Germany. The venue was the venue where those who were rowers or part of a crew team, as they're sometimes called, would be competing. There were six categories. The first five of those categories, the Germans won hands down, all gold medals. The sixth and the climactic of all six, the one that really all those interested waited for, was a competition between men, nine rower teams. The United States was there. In the background of the United States getting there, it was not unusual for the U.S. to have representatives in that particular event and even to win that event. But this team was made up of a college team from the University of Washington. And perhaps you know that rowing or crewing is not a sport that is that widely participated in among colleges and universities. But at that time, and perhaps even still until today, the colleges in the Northeast, particularly the Ivy League schools, dominated and do dominate crew in America. Well, this upstart team from the West Coast. Now, remember the year. What year am I speaking of? 1936. If you know your history, you know that the U.S. and the whole world was suffering from a severe economic depression. It's the Great Depression is what it is called. And the men who comprised the team that was at Washington University, University of Washington, and by some method they had made all the way to the finals is pretty miraculous. If odds had been given on their possibility of getting in the Olympic competition when they first were competing for a place on the team, people would have just laughed. If Vegas were active then, they would have such astronomical odds against their winning because these young men were products of the Depression. Their fathers were fishermen. 
or loggers or farmers, no sons of the privileged in their day. But nevertheless, they made it there. And their lane that they, was, they were given was the worst lane in the place of competition. And there was a strong headwind that they had to overcome in order to win. It came down to the very last part of the race, but lo and behold, the United States won. The nine men who were in the boat, they were so exhausted. I've seen footage of this. You can look it up online. They were so exhausted, they couldn't even celebrate because it was so fatiguing and it had been something which they had built toward for years, but they won. When they began to talk about that achievement, this is what they said about themselves. It was us against the world. Nobody gave us a chance. The man who perhaps was the deciding factor in that nine men crew team was a man named Joe Rents. Joe's story was probably the most poignant of all the stories of these nine men who made it on the team. You see, at the age of four, his mother died. She died of lung cancer. He never remembered having a conversation with her. As an adult, he spoke of these things. He did say, however, he had faint memory of going to the funeral. This man went on to be sent off after his mother died to be with an aunt in the eastern part of the U.S. When his father married, he was called home because he would have a mother to watch over him. But this woman did not like him. She found him to be a rival to her son whom she wanted to be the center of attention. She had squabble after squabble with him until one day in frustration, she went to her husband, Joe Rant's father, and said, it's either this boy, Joe, or me. You make a decision. Well, the man chose his wife. He took his 10-year-old son to the nearby schoolhouse where he had visited the leader of that school and he had arranged for him in exchange for his doing the janitorial work as a 10-year-old and keeping things going there, getting the wood chopped, getting the wood prepared when it was necessary to have a stove fire there to warm the place. He was there and did that. Some time passed. His father was going to leave with his stepmother and his baby brother. Actually, there were two younger brothers, one his full brother won his half brother and they were getting ready to go to another place for work in that area of the U.S. And Joe Rant's father said to him, son, you're a teenager now and you're going to have to stay behind and you're going to have to fend for yourself. Joe Rantz, don't know exactly what he said, but he didn't have anything he could say really. And he began to work. He made his living for two years. He was able to somehow or another get a rifle and he was able to gather some ammunition for the rifle. 
and he would go out and hunt game for his meat. And he would fish the streams, which were abundant with fish there. And he would get his protein from animals which he killed with a rifle and fish which he caught with a rod and reel or probably a cane pole. He couldn't afford a rod and reel probably. I don't know that for a fact. After two years, there was an older brother who was his full brother who was quite a bit older than he and he lived in Seattle and he invited him to come to live with him. Joe bit on that opportunity immediately. He had, in a sense, dreamed of going to university at the University of Washington. Part of his motivation was not simply to get a better education, however. A part of it was that he could get on some sports team. He was a gymnast in high school. He was very agile and quite athletic, and he was hoping to get on a sports team. When the call was given from the athletic department to all the student body, males in the student body at the University of Washington, if those men might be interested in trying out for the school's rowing team, he answered the call. He was a little reluctant, but he answered it nonetheless. He was reluctant because he had become a loner. You can see how he would be a loner, can't you? Because of the circumstances of his life, he was on his own. He'd been put, pitched from pillar to post and was not cared for. He had to fend for himself. Incredibly independent young man. Remarkably. But nevertheless, he got on the team, but he had a difficult time giving himself fully to the venture. And the man who was the mentor of this group ministered to him. I don't know if the man was a Christian, but he reached out to him. And there was a time, according to this mentor, that Joe Rance meant, went from just being an individual participant in the boat to being one who bought the team concept and was integrally important to the victory that was won in 1936. Well, you're saying, what in the world does this have to do with anything spiritual? <laughs> well, you can decide that when we finish this morning. Because this morning we're going to look at another group of boys in a boat. It's found in Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to look at verses 22 through 33 of Matthew 14. Matthew 14, 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, Jesus went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, 
and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you are certainly God's son. I have read this passage of scripture 50 times at least over the years. And I've always been fascinated with this episode in the life of Jesus and his disciples. But I saw something this time, and just like the Bible and the Holy Spirit when he ministers to you in the Bible, to see something you had never seen before. And I'm not looking for novel ideas to make something more entertaining to people who listen. But I believe, and I'm sure I'm right, that this is a very important concept. Five times in this passage of Scripture, there is the simple phrase, the boat, the boat, the boat, the boat, the boat. New Testament writers or any writer of the Greek language when they wanted to emphasize something, they would use what is called the definite article, which is translated in our Bibles by the simple article, the, the boat. There are other places we actually read from John where the word a is provided by the translator because there's no article before. And to make sense in English, we put the word a in front of those kinds of situations. The boat. I began to think about the concept of a boat and its implications for us who are followers of Christ, for disciples of Christ, frankly. And please remember that Jesus' preferred word and the Holy Spirit's preferred word for someone who is a Christian, as we call ourselves, that word only occurs three times in the whole New Testament. The preferred word is the word disciple. And this is about disciples. The boat was a symbol in the early centuries of the Christian church for the church itself. It was used for various reasons, but one reason it was used is so the Christians could use that symbol to communicate without speaking of their being Christians and within the Christian community, they would immediately identify the person with whom they were speaking as one who is in the boat, i.e. in the church of Jesus Christ. The mast in the paintings and the drawings of the church, of course, would present the cross. And it was a safe way when persecution had reached a fever pitch for believers to identify themselves to one another. The church was typically in the form of the boat pictured on a stormy sea. Certainly this episode from the life of Christ would have served as part of the background of that, but you could go all the way back to Noah, couldn't you? And you see, this passage which we read from Psalm 107 about a group of sailors going down on the sea. They were merchants. And what happened, we're going to see in just a moment, as they went on the sea, is pertinent to what we're talking about this morning also. I also began to think about Peter, 
who is like the Joe Rance, or Joe Rance would be like the Peter, sorry, Peter. But nevertheless, Peter, I thought about his experience with boats. And the first encounter we see his having in the book of Luke with Jesus, he'd been out fishing all night. Jesus had arrived on the shore and the crowd had gathered and that was common. Wherever Christ went, people gathered. And when Jesus saw the crowd, he saw also Peter cleaning his nets and his crew cleaning the nets. There were two boats in this fishing party. And he said, may I borrow your boat? And Peter said, have at it. He got in the boat and he could speak. And you know, when you speak over water, have you ever been on a lake on a still morning fishing? And all of a sudden you hear voices and you can't see anyone, but then you look and maybe two or 300 yards away, it's like they're right next to you. You've ever seen that happen? Jesus was using that to project sound and to get away from the press of the crowd as well. Well, he gave his message and came back offshore and Peter had listened intently, I'm sure. And then Peter, when he saw Jesus, heard Jesus say this, did you catch any fish last night? No, we fished all night. We didn't catch any fish. He said, well, get in your boat and go out to the deep water and throw your nets in again and you'll get a phenomenal catch. Peter said, but we did it all night. Look, Peter, just do what I say. And Peter was the expert. Jesus was a carpenter, not a fisherman. So he gets in the boat, goes, and you know the rest of the story, don't you? They did catch an incredible catch. And then when he gets back on shore, what does Peter do? He goes over and he falls down before Jesus. And Jesus said, from now on, you're going to be a fisher of men. Jesus called that man in that moment. And the rest, as they say, is history. If you fast forward to a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to Peter and six of the other apostles, two of whom are unnamed, on the Sea of Galilee... We see Jesus on the shore. He's put together a charcoal fire. And there's meaning to that. I won't go into that in the interest of time. Charcoal fire, and he's cooked some fish. And there's a conversation that begins. And here again, sound travels fast over water. We don't, don't know how far, but it was far enough that when Peter dived in, he couldn't wait to get to shore because he knew it was Jesus. He knew that voice and he went. And here again, Jesus asked, did you catch any fish? And some scholars, so-called, have said, that's just a repeat of the same story. And that just shows, excuse me, scholars, I'm not opposed to scholarship, the ignorance of people who don't know the Lord and are trying to explain away the Bible. But I think the Lord, this is just my supposition, which is not, written in stone by any means, but I hope you'll see the possibility of it, is that he was taking Peter, who had denied him all the way back almost three years before, and reiterating his call to be a fisher of men. He sends him back, and what happens? He does what the Lord said, and they had so many fish, 
and they even counted the fish. We know fishermen have big stories, don't they? And they grow over time. But they counted them, 153 fish. That's a lot of fish. Even it's minnows, that's a lot of fish. But these were edible. These were pan fryers, I'm sure. So we see Peter had a lot of experience. And here's the clincher. In the book of Luke chapter 5 and in John 21, it's, I was amazed, but I shouldn't have been when I began to do the research, the boat in each case, the boat. It's likely it's the same boat that these men, I'm just speculating here, same boat that they were in when Jesus told them to cross the Sea of Galilee. And the same boat that Peter used in the Luke 5 passage, the same boat that they were in. In fact, in John 21, when these seven apostles were there, slash disciples, what we know is that there was a little boat they had. And evidently this was not uncommon. We've seen this when there's a larger sailing vessel. Sometimes there's a smaller one there when you don't need enough room for the whole crew to go do something. And that's exactly what happened. Peter had gotten ashore by diving in and swimming. And the rest of them, six more, got in the boat, little boat, as compared to the boat. This is about the church of Jesus Christ, I'm sure, this story. It's about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So listen carefully. This is the will of God for you if you know Jesus Christ. And it's your story. It's amazing how history repeats itself, isn't it? It's so predictable when we look at the human condition and we see us, how we're no different than Peter, are we? We're no different than Abraham, are we? We're no different than David. You can go down or Esther or Ruth or Naomi. We're not any different than all these godly people in every respect. And we're going to see. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, is what the Bible says. And we know that Jesus said the Holy Spirit would use Peter and John and the other apostles to give us a record that was accurate about the ministry and the method of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. So this passage, let's dive into it and make hay while the sun shines here. The first thing we see in the first section, it's a 12-verse section, and it neatly divides into two parts. Interestingly enough, a key facet of this is found in verse 27. Look at it again, 27, and note the words which Jesus speaks, and I'll talk about them in some detail in just a moment. Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. The same number of words, but above this statement that Jesus gives here, and the ending of this section in verse 33, the same number of words are used. 90 words or a couple over, the other over. But the main emphasis here is this, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. 
these disciples clearly found themselves, and I hesitate to use the word disciple because most of us, when we hear, hear that word, we think of just the apostles, don't we? But it's about all those who are followers of Jesus Christ. They were in dire states, straits. So let's look at this passage in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of them to the other side. Now, why do you suppose Jesus was so intent upon getting them out of there? And the indication is he made them get into the boat without him. That's one reason probably they had some disagreement with Jesus as to whether they should get in the boat and go across the lake. But the bigger answer to that question, I'm confident, is found in John chapter 6 in where we read together about the feeding of the 5,000. And what did the people say about Jesus? He's a prophet. He's the prophet, really. All of Israel had long awaited the Messiah, but they had also long awaited a prophet in the likeness of Moses. He's the prophet. And then they were planning to make him king. Not just prophet, but also make him king. And Jesus knew that his kingdom was not of this world a spiritual kingdom. But we can't fault the apostles, these specialized disciples, if you will. We can't fault them that they wanted to get part of that action because they bought into the common thinking of the day, that there would be the establishment of a kingdom that would become the riddance of Rome. And every other country that had oppressed them, the Greeks, and all the nations that had oppressed them. We could go back through the Old Testament and see country after country, nation after na nation, putting their heel upon the neck of Israel. But that was not part of God's plan. And he knew he had to get them out of there. And also... He knew something else. He wanted some time alone with the Father. What had he just finished doing? He just finished feeding the 5,000. Have you ever tried to feed 5,000 people in one day? We might think it's just a piece of cake. After all, he's Jesus. Well, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, oftentimes there is some description of his losing power. He didn't lose his divinity, but he could tell when the power went out of him. He fed 5,000 men plus the women and the children. Let's just conservatively say he fed 7,500 people. And a lot of spiritual power was necessary for that. He had been ganged by people. And he was wanting some time alone. In Mark's chapter, where he describes this, in chapter 6 of Mark, it begins by Jesus receiving reports from the apostles when they come back from their first mission. And then people were still all around, hanging out, wanting some time with Jesus, wanting him to heal people, wanting to listen to him teach, and wanting to listen to the apostles as well. Jesus said, look, men, you need to get away and rest. And so Jesus saw their 
fatigue. But believe it, Jesus got tired. There was an earlier event that occurred that sometimes is confused with this event. It's recorded in Mark 4, where Jesus was in the boat, the boat, with the apostles. And all of a sudden, a storm comes up, and he slept. He would have slept through the whole thing if he hadn't been awakened. But we know that Jesus was tired too. That's a sign of his humanity. Fully God, yes, by all means, never forget that. Never believe else, anything else but that. But here we see Jesus not wanting to be with anybody, even to sleep around him. He needed some time alone with his father. And when we look at the book of Mark again, chapter six, we get a few more details. He positioned himself on a point where he could see this group of disciples making it across the sea. He could see where they were during the night. He prayed to the Father. He had fellowship with the Father. He was looking for direction from the Father. Remember, Jesus says on more than one occasion, I only do what I hear the Father, what see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father say. And so he was alone. And I'm sure he was praying for those men too. Now let's stop here just a moment. A storm was awfully strong against them, wasn't it? They're in the boat, a storm. Hold that thought for just a moment. But Jesus was there all the time. We have a song, or I hear it on the radio, I can't remember whether we sing it or not, that Jesus was there all the time when you and I are going through some kind of storm in our lives. In fact, Jesus makes them get into the boat. Are you in a storm today? Do you know the Lord is not ignorant of your plight? In fact, it's likely that he orchestrated it for the simple purpose of doing what he did with that group of sailors whose story is recorded in Psalm 107. If you listen carefully, who caused the waves to rise up? Who sent the strong wind to create those kinds of conditions on the sea? It was none other than God himself. And what was God aiming to accomplish? And by the way, he did accomplish it. He was aiming to strip them of their own self-reliance. You see, they were experts among the Jewish nation as far as the sea was concerned. They made their living, after all, on the sea. Just like these men, most of them at least, who were in the boat. And so it's in our area of expertise, but more than that, our area of self-reliance. Sometimes I can remember when I did things that the Lord gave me to do and I was so scared to do them and I've done them a hundred times, thousand times maybe since. Going back over the decades that I've been a pastor and sometimes I just go on autopilot. Did any of you ever do that spiritually? Well, it's disastrous to do that. And the Lord doesn't take kindly to that. And the Lord wants to teach us the imperative nature of depending upon Him in every situation. So he strips us of self-reliance, just like was going on in this episode in the lives of Christ's disciples, and then he stirs us to God-reliance. What happens as we think ahead to this story? There's a big change in those men 
positive change as well. Christ also, if you go back to verse 22 again, he sent the crowds away. He didn't want them to carry out what they were planning to hail him as king. And after he sent, the Bible says in verse 23, the crowds away, he went up on the mountain himself to pray. It was evening. He was there alone. The question is, what constitutes evening? It would be just before sundown or shortly after sundown. This was during the Passover era. And in that time, the moon would have been full. Perhaps there was a clear sky. Good for crossing the lake. But we don't know exactly when the wind rose up. One of the reasons they may have resisted going over in the boat was because there was already some sign that a wind was brewing. But look at verse 24. But the boat, the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves. The word battered literally means tormented. For the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, this would be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Let's say Passover time, they left right at sundown, 7 30 maybe, the way we count time, and add that up. How many more hours? Four and a half hours to midnight, at least three more. Seven and a half hours, they've been straining at the oars, straining at the oars, and they were worn out. Don't you imagine? Just like those sailors over in Psalm 107, when they tried everything they knew today, it says they were at their wits end is the way the New American Standard translates it. What it literally says in the Hebrew is they had tried every trick in the trade and none of them had worked to salvage their lives and their boat. So back to the text we're reading. It says, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They were terrified by what? The storm, of course. And they were more terrified, it seems, by this apparition, this ghost, who turned out to be Jesus himself. And they cried out in fear. There was a lot of folklore at this time in the nation of Israel about sightings of ghosts on the Sea of Galilee. There was a belief that the sea, whether it was the Sea of Galilee, which really is a freshwater lake, or the Dead Sea, or the Mediterranean Sea, any sea was the habitation of demons. That may or may not have any basis in reality, but that was the background of their fear. But verse 27 says, immediately Jesus spoke to them. This is important. When you are fighting a battle. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, the Bible says, but against the rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world and spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. When we are fighting a battle, there's one voice we need to listen to, and that is the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about sitting and waiting for an audible voice. I'm talking about read your Bible. And the Lord may speak to you so definitely it feels like, seems like he's speaking aloud, but you need to have an ear and you want to hear what Christ says. And here's what he says. Take courage. And the verb, it's a command, obviously. And it's a verb which means keep on taking courage. 
What does that say to you and me about being disciples of Christ? What it's saying is that this life is filled with moments that call for courage because we are in a battle and we need to be ready all the time. Always taking courage is what we're called to do by Jesus. It is I. Now here is what I believe the best part of what he said. It is I. Literally two words. Ego, our word ego comes from that. I, I me, I am. He didn't say it is I. Actually he says I am. That's all he says. And whose name might that be? Do you know? It's God's name. God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush and calls himself I am is the one who is sending you. I am. So not only are we to take courage, but we got to have a good object to take courage in, right? And who is the object? It is God himself. Jesus is God. We see his humanity. We see his divinity. His divinity is clearly spelled out here. And by the way, I think everyone in the room here, if you were in a crisis, and some of you are today of different kinds, apply this to your crisis. If you know Christ especially, he is with you. Isaiah chapter 43, listen to this. And now thus says the Lord your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Do you know Jesus says about himself as the good shepherd, he knows his sheep by name? And you are his, and he is going to take care of you and protect you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. I love this. I hope you're getting encouraged. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, do not fear, for I am with you. Whoa. Take courage. It is I. I am. And then it says, do not be afraid. Literally, the translation should be, stop being afraid. Would you do yourself a huge favor and memorize this little part of a verse of Scripture and remind yourself of whose you are and what that means for you when you are worn out, fatigued, full of pain, wondering how I can go on. How can I? Well, it's to be found here. And it goes on to say in this passage of Scripture, 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, we've seen dire straits of these disciples. And then here's Peter. He's never at a loss for words. We know that. He says, Lord, if it is you, he was still not quite sure, command me to come to you on the water. He doesn't say, promise me, Lord, and then I'll get out of the boat, does he? He said, come. Jesus gave him a command. In John 15, 7, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. 
His words include promises, over 7,000 of them, and we should take advantage of claiming those promises according to the will of God, but also the commands. He speaks to us individually about something in our lives he's trying to deal with through the storms in our lives, trying to strip us of self-reliance, that's a biggie, and strap us to himself, stir us to relying upon God and him alone. Let's read further in the passage. Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Wow, the water became congealed, didn't it? It was not like jello, by the way, it was hard until something happened on verse 30. But seeing the wind, we're supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus, aren't we? But what happens many times, we see the storm, and when we're in the middle of the storm, we get distracted. It doesn't take one moment for us to get distracted. There's some encouragement that even the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul, by the way, and you can look at every figure in scripture with a few rare exceptions, and most people had moments when they wavered in their faith. And every time they did, it was because they took their eyes off of the Lord and put them on themselves and on the circumstances. And that's what happened with Peter. And what happened, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And what did the Lord do? Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? How quickly we, I'm talking about me, I should just say Mike Woods, how quickly I can give a message like this and believe it 100% and be committed from this moment forward, Lord, I'm gonna keep on being courageous. I'm gonna remember that you are God, the creator of the universe. I'm also going to acknowledge that I need to stop being afraid. I don't know how many times I've done that. But thank God, every time I've done that, it has bolstered me and it's helped me to get back where I need to belong and not be overwhelmed by certain things. We know in this world not to be defeatist in any way. I'm not trying to be discouraging here in this message. I hope you know that. But we still have the capacity to sin. Paul talks about it in Romans 7. The things I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. What was going on there? Has he got a split personality? No, he's got what the Bible calls flesh to deal with. His own selfishness, his own will over against the will of God. He still depends. We all have that capacity still. No matter how mature you get in Christ, you can revert back in a heartbeat to calling the shots in your life to do what you prefer instead of what God and Jesus would have us to be and to do. Let's read through this passage a little further. When Jesus appears in Matthew 28, the last part of the Gospel of Matthew, the apostles are going to a predetermined place in Galilee, and this place is where Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. And the Bible says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. That's beautiful, isn't it? But some doubted. And Jude 
The 22nd verse, the Bible says, have mercy on those who doubt. Why do we doubt? We doubt because of a lack of faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ is what Romans 10, 17 says. Peter and his cohorts, they heard the voice of Jesus. They responded in faith. They, in the case of Peter, he took his eyes off and he began to go under. You're going under in the middle of not give, getting your way. You're going to go under every time you insist on your way. I'll just tell you. Because the Lord wants you to be sold out to Him. You can't blame God. So many people blame God. That is nonsense. Our God is a sovereign God. And He takes all the difficulties and translates them into something good if we trust Him. Peter had double vision, so do we. He was double-minded, so are we at times. But we need to be people who trust in the Lord at all times. I'm gonna give you some observations, five actually, on being a disciple of Christ as I finish. Being a disciple of Jesus, being in the boat, Think in those terms. Being in the boat. What does the boat represent? The church of Jesus Christ. It's a place of hardship. We see this. And we know that this story teaches us how to weather pain and fear and fatigue. Just like Joe Rance in that group of champion rowers learned through the trouble that he experienced. Hardship. There's hardship in following Christ. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the hardship we faced in the province of Asia. When Moses met his father-in-law and good friend Jethro, and Jethro said, tell me what happened. What's happened? I want to hear. And he told him of all the great things, the miracles that God had done. Remarkable. Then he says, he also told me about his hardships he faced on the way. That makes us believable. That makes you and me a credible witness of Christ. We need to understand that. Hardship, partnership. Don't you know there was great unity on that boat? There's no sign of bickering among the apostles, is there? Some places we find them there at each other's throats, backstabbing and everything. But man, when you're about to go down, you need all the manpower you can, don't you? This is why... The Bible is so intent upon telling us that we're to make every effort to protect the unity of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, and the bond of peace. Partnership, unity. Here's the third characteristic. First, hardship. Believe it and deal with it properly. Partnership. We're in a fellowship. And thirdly, guardianship. Who's our guardian? Jesus is our guardian. And he says, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. Christ saw them and he prayed for them. Do you know he's praying for you now? He's praying for me right now if we know Christ. He's our intercessor. Thank God for such a guardian as he. And then worship. Look at verse 33 here in the passage of Scripture. Why don't we read 32 also? When they got into the boat, third, fourth reference to the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him. 
saying, you are certainly God's son. Worship. The word worship is used, same word here that was used to describe the Magi coming and their royal robes and rich to the max. And they got down on their knees and probably on their faces. They maybe even would have kissed the feet of this baby. And the reason for that is that's what the word means. Proskuneo is the word. And it's the idea of coming before a dignitary and totally humbling yourself in adoration. The church is a place of worship. As we saw from Psalm 107, they reached their desired haven, these sailors who lost all confidence in themselves, thank God, and put all confidence in the one true God. And he brought them to a safe haven. And what did they want to do? They wanted to worship the Lord. We need to worship the Lord individually when he gives us a victory. We need to know each other well enough to where we can say, I'm struggling with this. Would you pray? And we'll worship the Lord with them as we pray and trust the Lord. And then apprenticeship. This is by implication. The granddaughter of Joe Rance, Jennifer Huffman, tells the story of her grandfather. And she said, I have learned to persevere, basically, because of the example of my father, grandfather, rather, Joe Rance. We have the ultimate mentor, don't we? And the ultimate father, we do. His name is Jesus Christ and he's Jehovah God, our Father. And we don't have to be defeated in this life. The victory has been won. When Jesus rose from the grave after having paid the price for our sin and offered us a place at the table, the result is that we have victory and we don't have to walk in fear and defeat. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask now that you would help us all to be men and women who are disciples of Jesus to the max, Lord. That we keep our eyes on you and you provide a way out for us whenever we face some difficulty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.